Welcome to Relate Your Research, the online podcast for social work researchers. The aim of this podcast is to make social research accessible. Whether you're a social worker, a psychologist, an educator, a health practitioner, anyone, this is for you. Even a parent who might like to find out more about social issues. Conversations are not scripted and are produced to create authentic conversations. We're branching into the ECD field of research. This is going to be part of a series covering a variety of relevant topics related to early childhood development. This means that you'll expect to find our regular Relate Your Research episodes in and amongst early childhood development episodes. We look forward to having you on this journey with us. I'm Jessica Renasson and research should be relatable. We're really excited today to have not one, but two guests on the line. And that hosts, um, that for a host is a real amazing opportunity. So welcome Simone and Kathy. It's lovely to have both of you with us. Thanks for having us. Hi. (laughs) Wonderful. So this is part of our ECD series. And the heart of that is really just to start to share research that's been done in the South African context in terms of early childhood development. And you both have a unique background and skill set in that. So I thought I would hand it over to you. And maybe you could both share with us your background um, and how you became involved in early childhood development. So my background is in psychology and public health. And I somehow landed up in an exercise science and sports medicine research unit for my postdoc. And a few years into it, I did an evaluation of a, a movement program for preschoolers in a a township called Alex in Joburg um, and we were assessing whether the program had, had an impact on school readiness yeah and I just had this kind of light bulb moment sitting testing a child in a preschool at a house next door to a shabine and at nine o'clock in the morning and the shabine was well on its way that project really just kind of opened my eyes to the importance of early childhood development and how movement and activity could potentially play a role in promoting early learning and school readiness. Um, And from there, we just started doing a bunch of different projects to assess some of these things which hadn't been done in South Africa before um, in this age group. So things like gross motor skills and physical activity, better understanding the physical um, environment at preschools and how this might promote these things. And yeah, and I've just done various projects over the years to look at that. And that has led us a little bit more down the early learning path in more recent years, um, but also towards the development of the South African 24-hour movement guidelines for birth to five years, or the South African early years movement guidelines. It's all a bit of a mouthful. Yeah, so that's, that's also been a great opportunity to just translate some of the scientific and kind of evidence-based stuff into something that can actually provide some practical recommendations um, to anyone who cares about young children. Kathy, if you could just describe to us um, on the, from the outset, what are these 24-hour movement guidelines? Okay, so maybe just to start off by saying movement behaviours um, refer to physical activity, sitting time, screen time and sleep. And so how we've described it really is moving, sitting, and sleeping. And the idea of the 24-hour approach is to understand that all these behaviors, you know, don't necessarily happen discreetly and on their own, but 
um, help us to give an, get an understanding of what does a healthy 24-hour day include. When it comes to how we divide up the guidelines, it's into three age groups. Uh, so babies, birth to one year, uh, toddlers, one and two years, preschoolers, three, four and five years. And the guidelines for each of those age groups are talk about moving, sitting and sleeping. And for moving, it gives a recommendation of uh, the amount of time that they should be doing the activities and examples of the types of activities that are optimal uh, for achieving this. Uh, the sitting time uh, also in gives uh, examples of what are beneficial activities from the point of health and development um, for young children to be doing when they're sitting, because we know that young children do sit and they, they need to have some kind of quiet time that they not necessarily moving and running around. Um, and then within that, it gives the recommendations of what is a healthy amount of screen time uh, for each age group. And screens is TVs, tablets, phones, computers. Um, and then the sleeping gives for each age group the recommended range um, of hours that the child should be sleeping. And for all of these age groups, it's over a 24-hour period. So it's not just what they, um, not just how much they sleep at night, but also um, taking into account their naps during the day as well. Fantastic. And Simon, for you, what was your kind of role in the, in the development of these guidelines? But maybe you could provide us with a bit of a backstory. Sure. So um, as it happened, Kathy was looking for a PhD student around the same time that I was looking for a PhD project. Um, <laughs> and I've always enjoyed working with small children. Um, it was something that I I remember doing during my school holidays because my mom works at a, a primary school um, and during my university holidays, although that work was always more sport focused as I'm a hockey player. Um, but prior to starting my PhD, I'm, I'm also a biokineticist by, by practice. Um, and even though biokineticists are technically not allowed to specialize in a specific discipline, I always loved working with children. Um, so yeah, so when when Kathy had this this PhD project available, which was to look at physical activity and gross motor skills in a rural preschool sample, I was like, yep, that's that's me. That's got my name written all over it. Very soon after I um, completed my PhD, it was around the same time that you know Kathy was very much ready to say, yep, let's develop 24-hour movement guidelines. And a lot of the findings from my PhD project was able to inform some of the content of the guideline development. Um, so my first year of postdoc um, following my PhD was to assist with the guideline development. And yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> Fantastic. So what would you say is the current situation in early childhood development with regards to the physical development, specifically birth to five? Kathy, I don't know if you would like to start. There's always this idea of where do we begin from a South African context? So I guess it's helpful to think if we're thinking of birth to five years, there's the kind of first two years of life, which fits into the first thousand days and then these preschool years, which comes after that. And there's been a, a huge amount of investment and effort into the first thousand days to the extent that when we talk about physical development um, in terms of milestones and growth and those kind of things, the emphasis is often on those first two years. Um, 
And certainly with the new Road to Health booklet that's given out to, to moms when their babies are born, that does cover the full five years. But a lot of the time, the focus um, is on those, those much earlier years. Um, and things like um, activity, screen time, all of those kind of things don't really feature in that conversation or in those materials. Um, and we kind of think of those as behaviors the children might choose to do as they get a bit older. Um, but part of the reason why we moved into this research is that in South Africa, when it comes to the, these movement behaviors um, as they relate to physical development, um, there's just really not that much happening. Um, and in the first, the first few years that I was involved in this, I kind of tried to get a sense of what was happening on the ECD landscape in South Africa and connected with various people, went to a few conferences and, and people were always really interested in the physical activity and gross motor skill stuff because no one else really seemed to be focusing on that. Um, particularly if, if we say in the kind of public sector. So obviously if you, um, live in a more affluent area or go to a, um, a higher income preschool, there's all sorts of you know, programs that are available, swimming and ballet and monkey gymnastics and all sorts of things that young children can do to be active. But generally those come at a cost to parents. So if you're looking in lower income areas, it becomes very much what's available to children at the preschool. And while play and activity and um, those kind of things are generally part of the schedule and there's usually some kind of playground, some kind of playground equipment, um, you know, differences between the space and urban and rural areas. But it's generally accepted that children are active when they play, um, but often the play is kind of pitted against learning. So like if they're doing their learning well or if they're behaving well, then they can go outside and play. And, and so quite early on, I was motivated by um, trying to highlight that learning happens through play and that those are not kind of distinct things. And if you talk to any occupational therapist, you know, they will totally agree with you um, because that's a lot of where their focus can be and, and the importance of play and how that plays a role in learning. So, yeah, so there was quite a gap in terms of this physical development, particularly in the preschool years, and also that a lot of the focus is around addressing undernutrition, so stunting and those kind of things, um, which is still quite prevalent in South Africa. And there really hasn't been thinking so much around what do we need to do to actually set these children on a healthy weight trajectory in terms of obesity prevention. And so that is kind of the angle that we came through initially because a lot of the international research is focused that way. Um, and we realized that in, to get people's attention, we needed to focus more on the learning and the cognitive development because those were really the more kind of salient outcomes um, and almost find a way to build the behavioral stuff in and the obesity prevention as a positive spin-off. Um, but that really to get the ECD sector's attention, we needed to be talking about the things that they were really interested in, which was early learning, numeracy, literacy, getting kids ready for school, that kind of thing. Hmm. It's an interesting one to, uh, and maybe you could comment on then the push for a multidisciplinary approach to this. Absolutely. And I mean, in an ideal setting, um, that's really is what we need. I guess the reality that we've been faced with is that for the majority of this age group in South Africa, 
you know, an ECD center is often run by someone who, you know, has limited or maybe no training, possibly hasn't even completed school. Um, the, the local health center doesn't necessarily have the kinds of health professionals that would um, really help to maximize children's health and growth and development. Um, so, yeah, so I think ideally we do want that. Um, but I think in, in many ways we, we still work in a quite a siloed approach and that's quite, quite strongly influenced by the resources that are available to make that happen in most of the um, low-income settings in South Africa. And that's for kids who are at preschool and then there's a really high percentage of children who are not even at preschool, so they're not even getting the learning aspect, let alone kind of the benefits that a multidisciplinary team would bring. And for Simon, for you, any thoughts on, on that? Overall, I think the people who we do have working in ECD, as well as those who, who don't, um, they acknowledge how important physical development is for young children and the benefits of creating an environment for children to thrive. So where we, where we do have ECD centres working and up and running, there's certainly a lot of sort of positivity around physical development in children. Uh, in our experience, I think ECD practitioners are always, they're also always willing to learn, um, maximize information that research provides, which is really positive. Uh, I think as an academic, it is encouraging to know that research that I've done and that Kathy has done as well is almost always appreciated by the end users. Um, people, people take it up and they are always willing to learn and upskill themselves. And we know that more often than not, it has a significant and positive impact on what's happening in the ECD centres that we have worked in, which I think is great. Yeah, really encouraging. And would you say that your at the end of your project, you felt like it got the traction? How did people respond to that? When we conduct research, I think that should be definitely one of your, your goals is to help empower and uplift those people where you're doing research. I think that's a very important component of research to make sure that it's impactful, not only later on, but, you know, at the time. I certainly think that most of the the teachers that we worked with or ECD practitioners that we, that we worked with were very appreciative of the knowledge that we had imparted at the time. Um, I wouldn't be able to say now if if that's still the case. I mean, it's been a number of years since I completed my, my PhD data collection. Uh, but I, I, do, I do think that at least at the time and the children that we interacted with then may have had at least some benefit, even, even if it was small. So, yeah. So your study, um, and we're, we're jumping here between the, the movement guidelines, I understand, and, and your research focus, I suppose, but it involved various stakeholders. Um, and the article will make a link in the, the show notes, but it, it spoke to this idea of stakeholder consultation. Could you share with us a little bit about that process? A very important part of the guideline development process was reaching out to members of the, the general public. And as you all well know, in South Africa, where they uh, where there is an incredible diversity in terms of cultures and languages, but also a huge inequality in terms of access to resources and wealth, it was really important that we engaged with people from several parts of South Africa and in multiple different ways. 
something that you may also very well know um, is that funding is hard to come by for research projects. And so we tried our best to get a fair representation for the consultation within the limitations that we had. So the, the first bit of data collection was done with an online survey, which was simple enough to adapt um, from the Australians that we were working with. We were working with Professor Tony Oakley. Um, and we adapted that and distributed that. And we were very fortunate to have Marie-Louise Samuels from the Department of Basic Education to assist us with the, the national stakeholder consultation. But setting up focus groups required a lot more thought and collaboration. Um, but having connections in Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal in the Western Cape was very helpful. And we were fortunate to have had so many colleagues with a shared passion and interest who were willing to assist us with finding the voices that we really felt that we needed to hear to develop these, these guidelines in a, in a way that was applicable and appropriate for everyone. So in the end, we had nine focus groups. We had a national stakeholder consultation, which was held um, in Pretoria, where we had members from multiple NGOs as well as government representatives and then we had this online survey which we distributed which we are well aware that it wouldn't have captured absolutely everyone but we feel that we've got a fair representation to at least help us guide the development of the guidelines process. Kathy, anything from your side just with regards to stakeholder consultations and, and the value that had on the guideline development? Um, I think as I mean, as Simone's mentioned, we within our limitations, we covered kind of a broad range. And I think, like she said earlier, we, we got this kind of consistent positive reaction as much as we got some constructive feedback. Um, and I think it's it just really highlighted even in the kind of the time subsequent to launching, um, you know, to be able to, you know, if people do, you know, question where does this come from or who does it belong to or did you get these people's input, um, it was just really affirming to know that we actually, we had kind of gone from national government to people in private practice to, you know, moms and preschool teachers, ECD practitioners on the ground. Um, and I think we felt confident that we'd, we'd got a broad enough spectrum with a consistent enough message from that. So it's just always a good thing to be able to come back to because um, there's always this risk of kind of running off and doing these things that you think are a great idea, but then actually, you know, your selective stakeholder group kind of gives you the answers you want to hear, but you maybe didn't kind of spread it far and wide enough. Um, and certainly in some of the work we've done subsequently to disseminate this at a community level, um, it's, you know, we've got, the, we've got the same positive feedback, although with, you know, with ideas and with constructive suggestions, but it's, it's, it's provided a really good kind of anchor point, if that makes sense. Absolutely. What were some of your research findings? Any interesting conclusions that your team discovered along the way? So for the stakeholder consultation, we, we found that across all the different groups, um, so whether it was through the online survey or the focus groups or the, the national stakeholder meeting, the guidelines were mostly perceived positively. They were received well. Um, and irrespective of income setting or geographical location, people did tend to agree that it is important for children to be active. Um, and I, I don't think anybody would, would dispute that. Um, and that 
sleep as a behavior was important as well, particularly for development. We, I think we also found that there were conflicting views about, about screen time, uh, especially regarding perceived benefits of screens. That was something that tended to generate a lot of discussion in the focus groups, in the online survey, we had an open text box where people could provide comments about, you know, the different components of the guidelines. And we had many responses saying, you know, have you considered all the evidence? Are you sure it's all bad? Or are you sure that not at least some of it is good? And I think the, the screen time guidelines specifically, irrespective of age, so whether it was for babies, toddlers, or preschoolers tended to ruffle a bit of feathers at times. Um, but the, the focus groups for me specifically had really pulled together a lot of information that I think both Kathy and myself were aware of. And just because of the work that we had done through you know, my PhD and some of Kathy's previous work, but that we hadn't ever really formally collected data to, you know, substantiate this sort of argument, something that we could have um, spoken about. The four themes that we had pulled out from the, the focus group data specifically uh, was the first thing that we picked up was that the knowledge and awareness of the guidelines, but specifically the movement behaviors, so physical activity, screen time, sedentary behavior, and sleep, the, the knowledge tended to be quite variable, especially between parents and ECD practitioners. So we found that there was sort of a lot of mixed views um, around screen time specifically, but that it tended to be that the parents had sort of conflicting ideas about whether there was risk or more benefit when it comes to screens. Um, whereas ECD practitioners tended to have a pretty good idea about, you know, benefits of physical activity, benefits of sleep, the detrimental or potential de detrimental effects of screen time. The second theme that we'd identified, um, and this is something that I have mentioned in my earlier answers, was, was that the guidelines were perceived positively. And for us, that was a very, a very good outcome because here we were developing guidelines and we were hoping that people would be like, oh yeah, this is a good idea. But I think it might've turned out very differently if we had gone and spoken to people and they were like, no, 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 no. These guidelines are not a good idea. So it was really good for us to have people say, nope, this is a good idea. This is the kind of stuff that people need to hear. We need parents to know this. We need ECD practitioners to know this. The third theme that we had identified was that people identified many barriers to meeting guidelines. Um, and the barriers in this particular context that I'll refer to are barriers in terms of resources. So in the lower income settings, the, the barriers that often came up was like, you know, we want to be physically active with our kids, but there's you know not enough space or we don't have money for you know toys and we don't have money for programs such as the ones that Kathy had spoken about earlier. So sort of those kinds of barriers. In some instances, we often had ECD practitioners identifying a parent as a barrier. So basically saying like in the ECD center, we try our best to, you know, get the children to be active and to make sure that they have a structured nap time. And we want to do things that are good for their development. But they sometimes gave us the impression that some of that was unraveled by what was happening at home. So maybe it was, you know, you have a bunch of children who've got, you know, poor home circumstances, so single parent household, or, you know, that there's not enough money for food, let alone, you know, toys for a child. Um, but Often ECD practitioners would 
even just upright save. No, parents are letting their, their children watch TV. They shouldn't be letting them watch TV. You know, the children are just ruling the household and therefore the parents are barriers. So there was often this finger pointing, which I know is is not rare. <laughs> it's something that happens quite often um, where it's sort of like, no, that's your responsibility or no, that's, that's my responsibility. And there seemed to be quite a bit of disagreement between what the parents thought was their responsibility versus what the ECD practitioners were like, nope, that's not ours, that's the parents' responsibility. And then the, the fourth and final theme that we had also identified was this, what I had sort of come up with calling competing priorities, where you have a situation where everyone, as I mentioned, agreed that the guidelines were a great idea, but it might not be particularly high on people's lists if you are struggling to make ends meet, if you're struggling to put food on the table and now someone comes to you and says, oh, you shouldn't be letting your child watch TV um, or you should be making sure that your child is doing an hour of energetic play every day. If you had to sort of rank or list a bunch of you know, things that are important to a person that might not necessarily fall very high on their list just because there are all these other competing issues. So the two major issues that came up was firstly child safety, both in the home and the community. We had focus groups where people spoke about gangsterism, alcoholism, child abuse, um, you know, some, you know, fighting between mom and dad and the child then being, you know, exposed to that, which is a major barrier in, in South Africa, we know. Um, and then they spoke about also child safety in the community where they're like, yes, we want children to be active. We want them to play outside. But, you know, in the middle of, for example, a place like Mitchell's Plain where, you know, gun violence is a, is a problem, you know, is it safe? Is it is it actually safe for children to be outside and physically active? Whereas a parent might say, well, in that instance, I'd rather them be indoors and watching TV because that way they are safe. And another topic that came up frequently was this idea of nutrition. Um, and not only from the perspective where parents found um, or even ECD centers found that there was not enough money for, for food, but also this exposure that children have to eating junk food. So you know, parents sending their children even to the to the preschool with, you know, fizzy drinks and, you know, these terrible chips, uh, you know, 50 cent chips. Um, and they were like, you know, these, this is not good for children. So yes, it's lovely that you bring us these, these fabulous guidelines, but, you know, these children are eating very badly and the parents are not really helping that situation. Um, so that really was something that came up very frequently. Um, and so sometimes while I was conducting the focus groups, it would almost be like the guidelines, they weren't a hard sell, um, but sometimes we had to really bring it back and say, yes, this gu these guidelines, they are important. I'm not discounting anything that you're saying about child safety or nutrition, but you know, let's speak about child development and what is within your capabilities as an ECD practitioner? What can you do to make sure that these children are still getting the full advantage of being in an ECD center, um, you know, despite the challenges that you have at home, despite the challenges that the ECD centers face as well? Um, and I think in essence, the discussions and the focus groups that 
that we had, they they really for me brought brought about many accounts of parents and especially the ECDA practitioners that were quite raw in a sense and really helped me put put it into perspective. So yes, the guidelines are great, but we we need to deal with with the humanity and and everything else that comes with it as well. So Sure. It's really encouraging to me to hear you speak of the safety elements and the nutrition that pops up, popped up. And we have episodes on both those topics. So for listeners who are interested in hearing more about ECD lunchboxes, um, we've recently recorded an episode with um, a postgrad researcher who looked into the lunchboxes of ECD children um, and then also the safety and security around neglect and abuse. So yeah, just to link our listeners to that, um, to stay tuned, and I'll put the links below. Kathy, I don't know if you have something else you'd like to add on, on the findings. Oh, I think Simone covered it really well, and I guess just to put it in an international context and why these, um, why this stakeholder consultation was so valuable. Um, I mean, apart from guiding us into what to do. But um, Simone mentioned earlier that we had some assistance from um, Professor Tony Oakley from Australia, who'd led their early years guidelines. Um, and um, he had some help from Mark Tremblay, who led the Canadian early years guidelines. And at the same time that we were doing our process, um, the UK were also working on their guidelines. And then the leader of the UK, um, Tony, Mark and I were all, among others, part of the WHO's um, early years guidelines development group um, and it just the stakeholder findings really just helped highlight like what a different context South Africa is particularly to you know Canada Australia and the UK in terms of these other issues that Simone has mentioned um, and just really how real and exactly like she said how raw these are um, and even in the WHO process, there were times where, you know, we could inject some of the learning that we'd had from this process and some of the feedback and kind of the sentiment that was expressed around these guidelines. Um, so, you know, we can't just take stuff from other countries and just slap it on and say, well, that looks great. And um, this is what, you know, everyone needs to do and disseminate it in the same way. I mean, Canada's got this fabulous website, which, you know, works very well if you're in Canada and or anyone who's got internet access as, as part of their daily life. But, you know, we have to come up with different ideas and understand how, how it aligns with our government policies and our government initiatives. So people feel like what we're doing complements them rather than feeling like we competing. Um, yeah. So I think it, it really helped to just contextualize what we were doing um, and give it its own like South African flavor. What challenges did you experience throughout the study? Not having oodles and oodles of money <laughs> to go and like talk to everyone. <laughs> and the resources that it takes to, to do that. I mean, yeah, for sure. I think we were very fortunate to not have to come across or go over too many sort of like speed bumps. Um, it was for me, I like, Kathy had conducted some of the focus groups. I'd conducted some of them as well. Um, we were very fortunate to have a really good team of people. Um, it really was a, a product of a very good collaborative, you know, piece of work. 
Um, I think I think one of the the big challenges that I think now is we we often we as I mentioned earlier, we go into the setting, we identify all these barriers, we identify all these competing priorities. And to this day, I'm still somewhat stumped at, you know, what is the best way that we can actually help everybody? Um, and I suppose that's that's sort of like one of those, one of those issues that I think every, you know, researcher might have following a research project is, oh, you know, I found this and, you know, there's just so there's still just so much more to be done. Kathy, how do you see this research impacting ECD practitioners or principals um, in their centres or classrooms? Maybe you could also comment on how it might impact homes if these guidelines are are directed at both. Yeah, so I mean, I think one thing we learnt out of this whole guideline process is that the end of the story is not the launch. And we, you know, we had a great launch, and it was fun and exciting and kind of this culmination of the process in some way. Um, but I do remember thinking like, oh my gosh, this is just the beginning. And then we've also been working with this very cool creative company in Joburg called Creatrix. And as we speak, they are putting the final touches on a video that's going to go onto YouTube and can be shared that has all of our infographics and all the different languages. And the soundtrack to that is this beautiful song that's been written about the guidelines. So they, they helped us come up with a campaign name, which is Wozam Twana, which means come here child in Zulu. And the idea is that that captures this spirit of like, come child, let's go play. Come child, let's read a book instead of watch TV. Let, come child, let's sleep. Um, and so it's so we've had to then kind of translate the messages into a, a song format that we really hope will resonate with people. Yeah, so we've just been looking at other different creative ways to get the message out. I mean, we've literally had thousands of our infographics printed in all the different languages and have tried as much as possible to spread those far and wide in partnership with people who are on the ground. Um, but we know that that is not going to reach everyone. Um, and so we're just kind of trying different approaches. And this is very much kind of a proof of concept. So if we have a song and a little video, can we get it to be shared via WhatsApp? Will people look at it online um, with the idea that then we could get a whole lot more funding to come up with more cool creative ideas, more songs and some storybooks. And yeah, so that's, that's been a really positive um, spin-off what we realized in the workshops we did last year is that the ECD practitioners are pretty clued up. <laughs> they, um, a lot of the feedback we got, like they understand the value of routine. They know that play is important. They know that activity is important. They know that screens are not great for kids. Um, so they are much easier group to reach and to impact a lot because there's a lot of stuff that's happening to equip and develop the capacity of ECD practitioners through various organizations. Uh, there's just not as many that reach homes. Um, and yeah, you know, we're still learning as we go along. And part of this follow-up process was to go to some of the homes with some of the parents that they, the organizations work with and just hear from them how it's been used. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a lot we're still learning as we go along. Um, but we hope that it's, 
it's just this little bit of information that they didn't know. And like Simone said, we did get this positive feedback and often they said, Oh, we didn't know that babies shouldn't watch TV. Why shouldn't they watch TV? And um, we'd explain it, you know, in a simple way. And you could often just see like light bulbs going on and people saying, Oh, okay, well that makes sense. And, um, and, and trying to tap into this idea that for the most part, most parents and caregivers want the best for their child. Um, and we're giving you just some really simple tips to say these are some things that are going to help bring out the best in your child. You know, putting your baby in front of the TV is not the best choice for them and for that to be common knowledge. But it's, that's going to take a while. Sure. Thank you for those insights and really encouraging just to hear the importance of, of a network really and, and growing the momentum behind. Just to add, I mean, part of maybe one of the, not a challenge, but just one of the things that we've had to deal with is that people often assume that researchers don't have any insight into what happens on the ground. Um, and for the most part, that probably is not too far off from the truth. Um, so part of the process, and just when you say the importance of networks, is, is really to build those relationships and partnerships with organizations that see that you're not about just coming in and collecting data, but that you're trying to make a difference and you're trying to translate your scientific evidence into something that's practical. Um, and it's taken a while to, to build that trust with you and organizations to to see that you're not just about the science and, and then, and sometimes that's challenging the language that we use terms that we assume, you know, people understand. And I'll never forget one of our, you know, government colleagues in the process said, you know, you researchers and your sedentary behavior, because we know what sedentary behavior means, but no one else knows what sedentary behavior means. And that doesn't mean anything to them. Um, yeah. So I think we really did achieve that in creating that, um, network um but it's that's ongoing as well how can social workers trainers biokineticists anyone really working in early education how can they access this information um i think in terms of in terms of access to information so um <laughs> we we tried our best to when we when the guidelines had been launched um they were sort of posted online and we'd had, you know, multiple thousands actually <laughs> um, printouts of the guidelines. And, you know, we'd also developed these tips documents, which I'll speak about shortly. Um, but I think the, in terms of access to the information, I think it, that's part of our role as researchers is to make it more and more available. Um, so hopefully through your podcast, we'll be able to disseminate, you know, some, some research as well as some sort of more practical, practical um, goodies. Um, but I think in terms of also just using the information that they obtain. So I think it is really important that all, all practitioners, whether you're a biokineticist or a kinderkineticist or a social worker or occupational therapist or whatever, I think all practitioners that engage with young children and all their parents and caregivers should take the time to know the content of the guidelines, but also understanding why they are important. So something that Kathy had mentioned earlier, the, this idea where we, we went to parents and, you know, we told them, you know, for example, you know, babies shouldn't be watching 
TV. And then the, often the very first thing that they would say is, but, but why? Um, and it's very important that you, you have the knowledge, but you're also able to explain why and why these behaviors are important. Um, I completed my honors in biokinetics in 2010. Um, and at that time, there was very little time dedicated to learning about children and even less about movement behaviors, which as a concept would then be that a movement behavior or movement behavior, sorry, they occur on a spectrum between no movement, which is basically sleeping or resting on a couch, to doing lots of movement or energetic play or vigorous activity. And I think historically we've spent a lot of time learning about how to get children to move more and move better um, and physically develop um, and specifically also just move better, but with also more purpose. Um, but we've tended to not focus on screen time and sleep. And that's, you know, part of the reason why it's important to have 24 hour movement guidelines just to acknowledge that these behaviors don't occur in isolation. They occur on a 24 hour day. Um, but also to remember that these behaviors are important as well. So screen time and sleep and sedentary behavior, they are important. And so my first suggestion when it comes to actually using the guidelines um, is to take the time to understand the guidelines, have the confidence to speak to parents, speak to caregivers, speak to ECD practitioners, speak to other practitioners, perhaps who you work with about them. And then my second suggestion would also be to just be tactful in how you communicate the guidelines. Kathy did mention earlier, we we acknowledge that everybody wants the best for their child. People do tend to have differing definitions as to what the best is, um, but we certainly would never ever want to make a parent or an EC practitioner or an ECD centre as a whole to feel that they are under attack or that their practices are under attack. We are all on the same page, and that page is the what the, the fact the fact that we all want the best for for children. Um, and so that's that's also too very important to remember. Uh, something else that I think is important to acknowledge is um, the paper that Kathy had first authored, so the the guideline development paper. Along with that document, we published um, these tips documents, as I mentioned earlier. So it was a, a single single pager, so a one page A4 document. We had one for parents and one for ECD practitioners. Um, it was a component of the project that we really wanted to add, although, you know, due to restrictions, we weren't able to sort of really go crazy with it. Um, but, you know, I was fortunate to have several people on a team. Um, so in addition to Kathy, I had um, the kinetoconeticist Catherine Lacey. I had a physio as well as at the time, a mom of three who were under five years, so Lisa Fincham, uh, Dr. Kaylee Cook, and Dr. Alessandra Pyreshi, um, who are both academics in the field. And we had developed this, you know, one-page documents where we looked at, you know, tips for parents of children who were infants, toddlers, and preschoolers. And we tried our best to convey a message that was not only providing ideas for, you know, incorporating the principles of the movement behaviors and the guidelines, but why that behavior was important. And we'd be happy to share that as well. Fantastic. How have people responded to this work? I mean, there's so many layers to it. Um, Kathy, if you'd maybe like to 
to chat about that and maybe combine it with the opportunities that there are for furthering this topic. Yeah, I think like we've said, you know, the response has been really positive. Um, you know, whether people can implement it is, is always the question, but at least the initial response has been positive and even more so like Simone mentioned, when you explain the why, um, so people understand, you know, where you're coming from and, and what kind of impact this um, can have. Um, yeah, and I think in terms of the ways going forward, it's to really understand the best way to disseminate these because, you know, many countries develop the resources, you know, design nice materials, um, and then it's, it kind of sits on a website somewhere or maybe sits in boxes in people's offices. And um, in many ways, our community dissemination has been far more than any of the other countries that have developed this, um, which is great. But yeah, I think that the thing, the real challenge is understanding how best to get this out there and how best to get it integrated into what people are doing already. And none of what we say conflicts with any of the kind of policy documents or curriculum um, frameworks that have been developed for this age group. Uh, so it's really working over time with, through these partnerships that we talked about to get this integrated into what's already out there. Because we don't necessarily want it to be a standalone initiative, um, but it's a resource that can be added or referred to or provided alongside um, other things. Um, and even the other things that we are coming up with, whether it's music or storybooks, you know, it's going to be much better to say, okay, well, what organizations are already getting books out into homes and partner with them? What organizations or companies are already getting music out? Um, and even just in the focus group we had this week with some of the people that had attended the workshop already had suggestions for that. So, so it's the value is in, in kind of piggybacking into what's there already and seeing how we can add value rather than trying to um, have this own kind of self-sustaining initiative that, that, that tries to do everything on its own. And um, I think that's really where the avenues are further and research around that is to then say, well, wherever we can, are we evaluating what we're doing, not just in terms of numbers, but adding in that qualitative angle as well. So what, what do people think of this? Like, does it resonate with them? Is, is this something that they'd want to share? Those kind of things that the, the surveys give you kind of a real snapshot of that, but we don't always then contextualize that enough. So I think that's where the qualitative evaluation um, can really play a valuable role as well. Absolutely. Simone, if you'd like to bring us in for a landing, maybe you could talk to some of the recommendations that you feel should be noted. If I had to give recommendations to sort of other researchers, um, I would say, you know, building those networks, um, as Cathy mentioned, is, is really important. And I think what's also very important and something that we certainly try to do in the development of the guidelines, as, as well as the, you know, stakeholder consultation and the work that Kathy's doing now on dissemination is, you know, really trying to pull together, you know, everyone who has a, a common goal, and that is to, you know, Im improve the situation of ECD in South Africa through movement behaviours. Um, and so 
you know, my recommendation is, you know, people who hear this, you know, podcast or people who pick up our, you know, research papers is, you know, get in touch and, you know, let's all, let's all collaborate so that we can make, you know, an even greater impact. Um, because as Kathy's mentioned and something I've also said before is, you know, there's still, this is just the beginning. This is where the work starts. Um, and it's the only way we can, you know, get there is if we do it, this is if we do it together. If you want to go far, go together, something to that effect. Uh, and I think that in terms of moving ECD research into a space where we want it to be and, you know, getting to homes, I think that should be the approach that we have. Well, thank you both for sharing your insights and the journey that this article took. We'll, we'll have all the links below, which will allow our listeners really to engage with some of your resources and, and the actual paper itself. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's, uh, it's good to have an extra platform. That was Simon and Kathy talking about the 24-hour movement guidelines developed specifically for children in South Africa. If you enjoyed this episode, review, like, subscribe. We have many more coming your way. I'm Jessica Renarsen, and research should be relatable.